All right, well, we continue in the book of Mark. Uh, we will be in the book of Mark a lot in the coming months, uh, but we're, uh, we're still in chapter one, so I'll invite you if you wish to... If you... Y'all made, y'all made a mistake and laughed. That's we're going to get that every week now. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Mark, uh, we're in chapter 1, verses 29 uh, through 39. So uh, if you want to turn to that, a few Bibles you can. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on in this little bit of passage. We'll have to kind of focus on one section. But um, let's read together. Uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39 says this. As soon as they left the synagogue... They entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed by demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak unless they knew, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place. And there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. And he answered, Let us go on to the neighboring town so that I may proclaim the message there also. For that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout all of Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks, thanks be to God. God. All right, I believe there are many good sermons lurking in our Scripture today, and at least one terrible one. I think there's a good sermon uh, to be written about um, why it matters who carries the message, right? As Jesus tells the demons here to be silent and not talk about who he is, right? The medium is the message. You don't, you don't want everyone endorsing you. Or there's another one that you could preach about how every person, even Jesus, even God incarnate, needs a little peace and quiet sometimes. Needs to get away, take a breath. Needs quiet and space, self-care, prayer. There's a sermon to be had there, especially to us in our busy worlds. Or you could talk about the dangers of how you gather a crowd. What gathers the crowd together? What are they there to see? How that which attracts them can become the point in and of itself instead of being the thing that points them towards what you're there for, right? The dangers of that, which Jesus seems uh, intent on avoiding his entire ministry. You could even talk about the ecclesia, the called out ones, right? How Jesus immediately here, when they want to build something Back home, Jesus immediately orients his disciples towards a call out into the world. All those things would be good sermons. Well, in the hands of the right preacher, they would be good sermons. But tonight, I want to focus mostly just on Simon's mother-in-law and what we see happen there. Because I think there is a good sermon there. But it also happens to be the area in which a really easy and awful sermon is hiding. And it's one that I can almost hear someone preaching right now, right? I can hear someone preaching it in a way that demeans the role of women in Christ's ministry then and now. Maybe it's because of how I grew up and the way we talked about it, but it seems easy to me to imagine some patriarchal reading of this story where there's this poor, helpless woman who Jesus helps, and when she is helped by Jesus, she's helped so she can get back to her her ordained role, which is 
serving the men in the house, you know, back in the kitchen where she should be. A healthy and healed woman doing the dishes as God intended. Can I get an amen? Please don't. <laughs> we don't amen here, but we do say no uh, when the time is correct. Right? I mean, I, I, can, I can hear someone using this passage for that. I think that reading obviously is very simplistic, and I think it is miles, not even miles from the point. It's literally, I think, the opposite of what is happening. It's as far as you can get from what is really going on here, in my opinion. I don't think this text is at all prescriptive of the role of women that they are intended to play in regards to men or in contrast to men, although there are parts of it that feel descriptive of how it must have been to be a woman in that point in history. I believe it demonstrates actually very clearly how women have faith, of faith have laid out a path for the rest of us to follow, how they've led. To me, this is a clearly pro-women ministry kind of text. Now, at first glance in English, it would be easy to miss what's happening in this story. But it begins with a scene that I'm sure every mother in the room can relate to. Here is Simon's mother-in-law, unnamed and feeling terrible. She is sick. And so they plan a gathering. A crowd is still invited to the house, even though she's feeling sick, right? Even though she's not doing well. Some of you can probably relate to that. The idea that the mother's just supposed to adapt to what we want to do, no matter how they're feeling, right? But unlike the times that you as mothers are expected to adapt to everyone else's schedule when you are sick, in this case, Jesus is one of the guests. So it is, in the end, good news for her. And Jesus is immediately drawn, as he always is, pulled towards the suffering woman, and he joins her in her suffering, and he holds out his hands, and he, quote, lifts her up. Egyro is the Greek word there, egyro. And we see this verb throughout uh, Mark. Whenever Jesus is healing someone, he says, egyro, get up, raise up, right? It's the same term used all throughout the healings in Mark, but it's also the same term that's used in regards to resurrection in Mark as well. When he resurrects the little girl and he tells her to get up, egyro is the word here. When he talks about his own resurrection one day, egyro is the word that is used. It's used one, one time when people are trying to figure out whether or not John the Baptist may have been raised from the dead or not when they're arguing about that. Egyro is the name. It's the word that's used. It's the work that Jesus comes to enact in this world. And in Mark, the term is obviously used in, in these ways to convey something deeper than just fixing of the body. It's not just the mending of a wound. It is the raising of someone, right? It is the healing of someone in a grander, larger sense. This woman, in a very real way, is the first to experience Christ's resurrection in Mark. Here in chapter 1, Egyro is what she experiences. To experience his ministry of wrestling life from death, of reconciling that which is broken, of bringing light to that which is discarded and left in the dark. Christ's ministry to help a world crippled by its own sin and brokenness to get up, to Egyro, to rise from the dead. It's as much a resurrection as it is a healing. And it's intended to be that. People would have picked up on this word in the original language. Something bigger is happening here than her just feeling better. And so this woman is the first to experience Christ's resurrection. And it says she gets up and immediately begins to serve them, which admittedly is kind of annoying. Right? Because you could very easily 
One could choose to see this as purely an expression of a role that's assigned to her by culture, right? As soon as she feels better, get up, start doing the things no one else wants to do, right? That's how we could look at it. But I don't look at it that way. I think, again, there's more happening here than we see purely uh, on the surface level, especially when we translate it into English. Because, again, there's another word in the original language here where something very interesting is happening. The word here for serve is diakoneo. Diakoneo, D-I-A-K-O-N-E-O is how you would transliterate. Diakoneo, it's the same word where we get the word deacon. Diakoneo, to deacon, means to serve or to minister. And you may ask me, Mike, where else do we see this word in Mark? And I'm so glad you asked because that's what I would like to talk about for a few minutes. Diakoneo we find in a few places in Mark. It means, again, to minister or to serve. And we see it actually one place, even though we're only 29 verses in, we see it one place earlier in Mark uh, chapter 1. The first place we see it in Mark chapter 1 is when Jesus has left the wilderness in the time of uh, tempting from the devil, and it says that the angels came and diakoneo to Jesus. They minister to him. They serve him. They are deacons to Jesus. Next we see it here. Simon's mother-in-law is raised up and she diakoneo, she serves those around him. Then in Mark 10, we see it. In Mark 10, Jesus says about himself that the Son of Man came not to be diakoneo, but to diakoneo. Not to be served, but to serve. And then it's used one more time in Mark 15. In Mark 15, it's used to describe a group of women that are following Jesus in the apostles, Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of Jesus, Salome, who follow Jesus, and they diakoneo him. They serve him. They minister to him. They were very literally, in Mark, Jesus' deacons. So interestingly to me, the only ones in the Gospel of Mark for which this verb is used are Jesus himself, as he describes the entire point of his ministry, the angels, and the women. They're the only ones that get this verb assigned to them. The women around Jesus, uh, later on in, in the book, and this woman, Peter's mother-in-law. No one else, diakoneos, in Mark. For me, this is a deeply, uh, I mean, it kinda, I shake my head and it's a little bit uh, uh, disorienting for a kid who grew up in a tradition uh, that just did not allow women to be deacons at all. So I would argue that this story is not about a woman knowing her rightful place in regards to men in the world, so as soon as she feels okay, she's got to go assume that role again. I would argue this is a story about a woman who encountered Jesus and Jesus' resurrection and immediately understood the assignment. A woman who experienced Jesus and Jesus' healing, and she saw clearly who Christ was and what Christ wanted. She understood what had happened and why it had happened, and for her, Serving, diakoneo, deaconing, was the only logical response to what Jesus had done for her. Peter's mother-in-law, I would argue, is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to do what Christ claims is his entire mission to the world. Let's take a moment and compare that to the male apostles of Jesus. There's two places coming up in Mark where Jesus will discuss his own ultimate act of diakoneo, his own ultimate act of service, which is his crucifixion, where he will literally lay himself down at the feet of his enemies. There's two places where he starts to talk about that, and the disciples respond to it. 
First, in Mark 9, uh, Jesus is letting them know how he will be killed, and then he arri- they arrive at a home, and here's what happens. This is Mark uh, 9, 33-37. It says this, Then they t- came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you guys arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. You know, as, as you do. They were arguing about who was the greatest. He sat down. He called the twelve and he said to them, whoever wants to be the first must be the last of all, the last of all, and servant, that's diakonos, that's the noun version of the verb we've been talking about, of all. So the male disciples, nine chapters in, right after Jesus talks about his crucifixion, are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. The next chapter. Obviously, at this point, the, the disciples have no clue about truly serving yet, even though they've been with Jesus the whole time, and it's, Christ has been trying to teach them this. In the next chapter, uh, between the, that, those verses and the next ones we're going to talk about, Jesus has blessed the children and uplifted them, and say, he's talked about how we all should be like the children. He's talked about the rich and how it's going to be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle uh, than it is for them to enter the, kings, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven. He predicts his own death again. And then how do the disciples respond? Mark 10, we'll go 35 through 45 here, and this will refer to one of those verses I've already mentioned. James and John, the son of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You parents have this conversation about 50 times a week, right? I need need you to do whatever I ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. and, And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand are not mine to appoint but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them over, and he said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your diakonos, servant. Noun, right? And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to diakoneo, uh, not to be diakoneoed, but to diakoneo, and to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even after the first talk, the next chapter we see again, the disciples are still doing the opposite of deaconing, of serving. They're still jockeying for position, still trying to get power over one another and everyone else. They're arguing over positions of eternal power, and Jesus reminds them that it isn't that kind of kingdom that he is building. We don't lord anything over each other here. No, you must not seek power and prestige like the world does. You must become diakonos. Even the Son of Man came to deacon, came to serve, not to be served. Jesus spends his life, his teaching, his demonstrations, his rebuking, his all of it to get his followers to see the truth that Simon's mother-in-law immediately understood. And that truth is, we are saved to 
serve. We are saved to serve. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you could argue this is the unintended blessing that came from these women living in the midst of the patriarchy they did and all the weight that came with that. But they were not burdened with privilege, with the false understanding that they were born to dominate or to rule over or to win. Right? And as we know, even from scriptures, the eye, the needle, and all those kind of things, privilege uh, can be a burden. It can be a hindrance. This privilege of abundance carries within it enormous, enormous incentives to miss what Jesus is saying here when he calls us to serve. They could hear the call immediately. The men, not so much. You could argue they don't even get it until it acts, right? <laughs> So to review, Christ explicitly teaches that he came to serve. That this is his humble mission. As the creator of all things, his humble mission is to serve and not be served in this world. Apart from Jesus, the only ones in the gospel mark that ever actually make the choice to be deacons to diaconeo are the angels and his female followers, the women of the story. Again, this is pretty ironic for a faith tradition that has a long history of excluding women from quote-unquote legitimate ministry or spiritual authority in the church. And I think I would argue, I know there's still some traditions that disagree with me on this, but I would argue that we've had enough history now behind us to realize what a mistake this was. In fact, I would really have wished that some of the big tragedies and scandals that have gone on in the church that we've become aware of in the last 10 years, I really wish there would have been more women in the room about 20, 30 years ago. I don't know about you. I think we would have been a lot better off. But tonight's sermon, the, the point is not just um, to uplift the, the, these women and women in general for being the examples they've been, though we should do that, and I'm happy to be a loud voice in that matter. But a larger picture is to remind ourselves of that call that Simon's mother-in-law embraced immediately. And remember that it is a call to all of us. We are all saved to serve. The chief posture of any genuine disciple of Christ is humble service, period. This is what we mean when we talk about the power in God's kingdom. This is success in the kingdom of God. In this kingdom, the last are the first. This kingdom does not carry a sword, but is quick to pick up a servant's towel. It does not draw the blood of our enemies, but it does draw a warm bowl of water and wash its enemies' feet. You, me, we are all called to diaconeo. All of us. You are called to be a deacon. Certainly not the only kind of power at our disposal in this world. We have many other choices. This is just the only Christian option. Never mind the preachers with $10,000 sneakers who plaster their faces everywhere and preach that Jesus can make every one of your American dreams come true. Never mind the politicians who love to claim Jesus as the reason they seek to dominate each other. God incarnate came only to serve. And if God incarnate came only to serve, then none of us are overqualified for that job. There is no job too small for us. You are a deacon. Congratulations. So, 
where we pay attention to the story of this woman that is so easily lost, this unnamed woman in Scripture, maybe appropriately unnamed. May we keep our eyes on what she has done. And may the God of healing and grace raise us up and cast out whatever fever is disorienting us, whatever clouds our hearts and minds from the calling that is before us. May we clearly see the face of God and clearly hear his call to follow his way. For we are always and only saved to serve. Let's pray. God, we are truly grateful that your love is such that you did not come to this earth to dominate. When you were offered all the kingdoms of this world, it was an offer that came from the devil and you said no. When people marveled at why it was that your followers were not picking up swords and trying to overthrow Rome, it's the evidence you had to say, my kingdom is not of this world. God, may we never forget that the God of the created universe took flesh and blood, dwelt among us, and served us, washed our feet, loved us, healed us, gave his very life for those who most hated him and whispered forgiveness over them in the middle of it all. May we never stop being amazed by your humble love. And Lord, give us the courage and the wisdom to not sidestep your call for us to follow in your footsteps. Help us to be the deacons you have called us to be. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.